So we're going to have small groups tonight. Uh, but before that, we'll uh, continue the discussion about compassion and right view that we began last week. Those who weren't here, um, I started by talking about, um, and we've been talking about this in different ways the whole course, but thinking about or understanding that the experience of compassion is the natural uh, result of the mind or the heart connecting with experience. And when we open the heart, when we connect with experience, that moment of mindfulness or those moments of mindfulness have the quality of tenderizing the heart. Because generally we want to the way we were, were conditioned, we want to be defended. And so if we counter that tendency, that conditioned habit, so instead of being defended, like having my ideas and using my ideas or my concepts to defend myself, instead I'm being naked, you know, so instead of showing up with my ideas, I'm just showing up with awareness. And that exposure tenderizes the heart and and also we see um, we begin to see the play of karma, you know how conditional everything is. And then this just deepens the understanding, you know, it's like an awakening because we see so clearly, slowly, we begin to see more and more clearly how not only is there suffering or is there difficulty in life, but we see how we see clearly how much we're involved in that. Like there's nobody to blame or we're all to blame. We're all sort of codependently creating our misery by what, by what we're doing, how we're relating, how we're reacting. And so this whole realm of skillful and unskillful just gets vividly clear. It's like a heavy trip in a way, initially, to realize that we live in this hypersensitive world. We're hypersensitive. Everybody around us is hypersensitive. And the only sort of, on the surface at least, the only strategy seems to be to deny the fact that we're hypersensitive. That's our strategy for life. It doesn't actually reduce the sensitivity, but we're just distracted from that sensitivity. So it doesn't work, in other words. So when we take up the practice, we're emphasizing the sensitivity instead of trying to manage it by drugs or manage it by staying busy or staying distracted or staying in denial. We're actually realizing it's relevant. Like It's relevant to clear up this natural sensitivity deepen this natural sensitivity and let the, and allow the heart to become more and more tenderized. It's like the, I think the poem does such a nice job of just seeing, like just understanding the cycles of nature, not just in the natural world or what we call the natural world, but the natural world of our politics and our sort of oppressive um, hateful patterns in the world and how it's all 
circular. Sometimes we're the victim, sometimes we're the perpetrator. And it isn't so simple, you know. When we really are sensitive, we realize there really isn't anybody to blame because whatever we see out there that's bad, we also see it here. I'm not saying that people don't do unskillful things, but we start to notice what's behind the unskillful actions and we see the seeds of the same thing, of course, inside of us. So we really begin to see, you know, that we're all brothers and sisters in this world of suffering. Sensitivity exposes that, that we're all co-creating it. And this is what really breaks the heart open. And it breaks the heart open in a really good way, like breaks us out of our conditioned response, responses to pain, because we realize that our conditioned responses are exactly what has created this world the way that it is. So then it, it, it wakes us up to a kind of innocence. Like, you know, I, I, make, I use this example quite a bit. Like, when my life feels stressful, I think, well, I really need a quiet place to go disappear. You know, and I think, well, I can go away two days a week or maybe I can work three weeks and then go away for a week. And then I think about places I would want to go away to and think about all... And it's just, it becomes its own web of suffering. And, you know, have driving. This is like what makes the world the way that it is, is that people like me think I have to drive, you know, 150 miles in order to take care of myself. And not only do I need to drive, I need to cut down big trees and build something, you know. And then I have to hire people to come and pump out my shit and bring it away, you know. And then I got to deal with the rodents and the other things and because they're sort of attacking my place that brings me peace. I mean, it just it gets so absurd so quickly. And in so many ways, that's just one example, but in so many different ways, we're taking care of ourselves and we're creating the hell that we live in. So when the more we see this, the more it just breaks us wide open. And then we, compassion, you know, the awakening of compassion and the awakening of wisdom is, is a transformation of our whole relationship to life, to the world, to experience. Because normally our relationship to the world, as all of you know, it's all about like trying to have a good life and trying to avoid a bad life. And this feels, and deep in our bones, this feels so appropriate, you know, that we should be here, you know, careful not to step on other people's toes, but it's like totally appropriate for us to be devoted to having a good life and avoiding a bad life. But the more we open things up, the more we emphasize the sensitivity the more we realize that we just, you know, it's just not in the cards. I mean, I was talking to somebody 
the other day about uh, something that I recognize a lot. And this person was just saying that his life is a bit of a mess in terms of things not getting done, bills not getting paid, things not getting cleaned, problems not getting addressed. And then the thought was, well, I'm 40 or so, you know. I, I can either really address these things or I can just do the slow slide, you know, try to get to 80 <laughs> before the whole thing sort of collapses or turns on me and eats me. You know that feeling? It's like, do we really need to address all the problems we see in our lives? And then we start being willing to uh, justify just getting by. Because we realize like our idealistic notions of really having a good life in an idealistic sense, that, that just begins to fall apart. Life doesn't deliver. So then we start thinking, well, the best way for then is just that slide. Just get to the end without making too big of a mess, without leaving behind too much garbage or something like that. And I think there's, you know, maybe in some degree this is on the right, in the right direction. Because this revolution of compassion or this awakening of wisdom, like I said, it all has to do with something the Buddha said hundreds of times during his teaching career. You know, he was so explicit, tried to be so direct about it. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Now, this is more than just a pithy statement. He's really, I think, laying out like, whatever view you have about life, check this one out, this orientation. So, as we move through Tuesday tomorrow, you know, or move through the rest of Monday tonight, instead of the normal view of how to have, how can I have a good experience? How can I avoid having a bad experience? Our orientation, our view could be suffering and the end of suffering. So that life this experience we have moment by moment, it isn't about having a utopian experience, you know, getting, having everything line up. I'll go home, you know, there's no ice cream. There are some chips, you know, I have some salsa. Masterpiece Theater from last night is now on the internet, you know, so I can watch it, uh, one of those mystery programs. You know, harmless entertainment, you know, Ah, so (laughs) hopefully that's not too enticing. (laughs) Or, you know, because it doesn't take much reflection to realize, like, I don't really like to eat before I go to bed, you know, and especially chips, you know, because they just sit there (laughs) and as clever as those BBC programs are, you know, well-written, well-acted, you don't end up different after watching one than you were before. You know, you just get some mindless break from life. You know, that's in the best scenario. And the worst scenario, you actually, the mind gets really clouded and weighed down by what we feed on, what we watch. I still may watch it. I just (laughs) want you to know. (laughs) 
<laughs> but we could, we could, you know, be interested. Like, do you, do we really believe that this orientation helps, like delivers the goods, suffering and the end of suffering? So then it doesn't really matter whether we're watching the Masterpiece program or we're, you know, being good, you know, whatever that might mean, reading a Dharma book or meditating there or whatever it might be for you, cleaning the bathroom. So it doesn't matter. What matters, though, is this commitment to suffering, seeing suffering, seeing the end of suffering. And like it breaks our heart because we realize that uh, that life itself isn't really meant to deliver non-suffering. You know, it's not about the experience. It's not about whether we're watching Masterpiece Theater or cleaning the bathroom. This is what the reflection reveals. It's really about whether our life you know, suffering in the end of suffering really has to do with connecting versus disconnecting. And not just connecting, because, you know, I can connect to Masterpiece Theater or I can connect to eating, but it's, it's connecting in that universal sense, like not creating boundaries. That's part of the connecting, like no boundaries. So then when we're watching Masterpiece Theater, because there are no boundaries, there's also the awareness of the limitations of the show. We're not so absorbed in the entertainment. We're not investing in breaking our connection. We're invested in maintaining our, this broad, deep connection to life, to our hearts, to what we're feeling. So we don't forget you know, the images of kids with their ribs showing from Somalia, you know, we don't, we're not like trying to lose that image, those, you know, powerful things or, or just so in so many ways, you know, that we experience difficulty and problems and suffering and all the different shades and manifestations and all the beauty. So we're not using life to distract herself from that range of experience. We're investing in sensitivity, which reveals suffering and the end of suffering. And that's it. And then it, then uh, all of a sudden we're free then about what we do. Because it doesn't matter. We can do, we can maintain this reflection in any situation, whether we're eating chips or cleaning the bathroom or hanging out with friends or being alone. And it takes away, it strips away so much of the neurotic stuff we have about like in order to be good, I have to behave this way. I have to look this way. Part of, uh, you know, the reason we gravitate toward anger, toward greed I'm sure you recognize this when we when we invest in that experience, get identified with that emotion of greed or anger, it creates a sense of solidity because it's hard, you know, 
The mind fixates on what it wants. It fixates on what it's angry about. And that fixation, it's a kind of congealing that supports a sense of self and a sense of separation. I'm here as somebody who really wants something. I'm here as somebody who really wants to get rid of something. Somewhere in Jack Hornfield's book, there's this phrase, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, we prefer the quicksand of somethingness as opposed to the sure ground of emptiness. And this is the thing, too, about opening to wisdom and compassion, opening to suffering and the end of suffering, investing in sensitivity, and with that sensitivity, experiencing the congealing, the hardness, and the release of hardness. That's all we know. And basically, nothing else matters. All we really care about is, is the mind bound up? Is the mind releasing? Is the mind in the process of getting bound up and the process of releasing? And that's not just our gift to ourselves, but it's also our gift to the world. Because, you know, what would be, what could be better to be around than people who are sort of oriented toward what is most useful, most relevant, most helpful? Suffering and the end of suffering. And the thing is then, because we're in this mode of being sensitive and direct and intimate around suffering and the end of suffering, then all of a sudden meaning doesn't have much meaning. Like the idea that, oh, this person is suffering, she shouldn't have to suffer in this way. Or, you know, just desserts. You know, she did this, this is happening. What did she think was going to happen? So often, you know, around suffering, we tell ourselves a story. We have meaning, we give it meaning. But actually, that has nothing to do with compassion because compassion is about the sensitivity. It's an actual movement of the heart. The heart is moving, it's connecting. That's the movement, the movement of connecting. And it's not just once that we connect, but connecting has to be an ongoing thing. The heart is connecting, connecting, connecting. Releasing defenses. And because life is so dynamic and changing, the, there's, it's an ongoing process. And so there's no place for meaning, whether somebody deserves suffering or doesn't deserve suffering or deserves our compassion or doesn't deserve our compassion. It's fair, it isn't fair. This is the thing. Uh, we trust the sensitivity, the ache, the pain, the feeling itself, the ongoing feeling. Feeling is like a stream or a river. Have you noticed that? When we're feeling something and maybe at the end of the sit, when I suggested that we drop the phrases and just be in silence. And you can see how being sensitive, the mind, the heart, fundamentally sensitive, it's sensing, that sensing is like a stream of feeling, a stream of sensitivity. It doesn't have a beginning or an end and it doesn't have meaning. It isn't about meaning. It isn't about anything except that stream of feeling. And that's part of the practice of compassion is not to have to bring it into meaning, but just to let the heart be moved. Because 
as soon as we have to understand it, what I find, it's almost always a defense, like not trusting the dynamic, moving nature of feeling, of sensitivity, of exposure, of being undefended. Like it's too much. So we want to describe it to ourselves. We want to define it for ourselves. We want to turn it in, you know, turn situation into good or bad. Like, for example, you know, with Somalia or these places that seem, the suffering seems bottomless. You know, have you noticed how we, like, either we don't want to deal with it and we avoid the stories when we're looking at the news, or, or it's like we want to blame somebody. But it's not easy, I find it not easy to stay in that raw, exposed, don't know mind place. All I know is there's suffering, you know. There's suffering there and there's also suffering here, right? Because the pain is here too. I feel it. Or, you know, and we could probably, if we took 10 minutes, we could probably brainstorm 200 places where we feel pain. We feel touched, the heart is touched. And the part of this revolution, you know, from our ordinary view to uh, the enlightened view of wisdom and compassion is like we're, we're learning to trust. There's nothing wrong with that sensitivity. There's nothing dangerous or wrong with the exposure to whatever it is that we're feeling. It's actually healthy and in a spiritual sense, in a psych- psychological sense, in a, even in a physical sense, it's healthy to be feeling. It's a sign of health. And the heart, the mind, is quite uh, enlivened by being close to life, close to suffering and the end of suffering. This is enlivening in the same way that it's deadening to need to be disconnected or the need to be defended or the need to be disconnected, to be distant from pain. So I think we can say that wisdom and compassion or awakening, enlightenment, freedom, that becomes natural when the experience, the proximity to pain is natural. As long as pain, suffering, difficulty seems inappropriate, unnatural, um, the bad guy, then freedom won't be present. The freedom that is revealed through this path of deepening sensitivity. And remember, Sensitivity, we talked about this early. People missed those early weeks. Sensitivity depends on samadhi. We can't be sensitive and reactive. That's a different kind of sensitivity. To actually be sensitive, the heart has to be balanced, stable enough to be vulnerable, to be willing to be undefended. We can't actually force the heart to be undefended. Or if we do there's, in a sense, an equal and opposite reaction. We get destabilized by it. So, 
real sensitivity and this real work depends on both uh, emphasizing, deepening the sensitivity through the process of developing samadhi or balance or stability. And then not just being content with that balance or that stability, but using it to open, to let go of defenses. Because, you know, people develop samadhi and then they get really good at uh, creating beautiful gardens in their homes or beautiful kitchens, beautiful friendships, beautiful dharma centers. It's like you can use samadhi in the Buddhist sense, you'd say, to create a deva, a deva realm. You know, in the Buddhist cosmology, there are different realms of existence. There are hell realms, animal realms, human realms, you know, fine material realms, immaterial realms. So all of these realms are just, it's like beings vibrating at different frequencies. So when you're in the hell realm, you're vibrating at a really dense frequency and experience is very dense and painful, you know, animal realm. So it's not about good or bad. It's just, you know, the spectrum of being. But if we develop samadhi, you know, a real powerful, balanced, clear mind, but we haven't sort of transformed our view at all, then we're just going to use it to go about our business of pleasant and getting rid of unpleasant in a more powerful way. And you, we run into these people. Some of us are these people. You know, I part of my existence is this. You know, me, my mind, in collaboration with my partner, trying to create our own little celestial realm. You know, fine material realm where the birds chirp in just the right way and the garden is natural but beautiful, you know, and... Uh, Everything's just right. And we eat organic food from our local co-op and our CSA farm. And we, you know, have cool friends who practice Buddhist meditation. And we have a Prius. And it's like our own little Seward neighborhood is its own little deva realm right here. You know, and people are open-minded. And this is what we can do. But it's a limited, it it doesn't really work. But we can get stuck here for a long time. That's sort of the uh, definite, one of the characteristics of these deva realms in terms of Buddhist cosmology is they last a long time because it seems like it's a worthy pursuit to really get into these things. You know, and just think about how, like we got recently, you know, because we're, you know, groovy people. We don't like to buy plastic bottles with sparkling water, so now we've got our own little CO2 thing. Now you're all going to want one, those of you who don't already have one, you know. So we can make our own sparkling water, you know, and squeeze lime in it and sometimes put cherry flavoring that doesn't have any artificial colorings in it. You know, and it's really nice. It's really nice not to have to be buying plastic bottles, but to still be able to have sparkling water when we want it. And, you know, there's no end to investigating these things. And then, like, 
is it better to do this or to do this one, you know, and it just never ends. And that's suffering too. You know, and having to being dependent on the subtle pleasantness. You know, and then like uh, Wynne noticed she's been doing some choreography downtown, so she's taking the bus um, and uh, to avoid paying for parking. And of course, then when you take the bus, you're with a different group of people and you go through different parts of town, you know, that normally a lot of us don't go through very much. And that sort of, you know, it's a different kind of experience. Or as we were talking yesterday, Wynn was at a conference out in California for urban Dharma centers. And uh, Pascal, one of the teachers from Montreal, was there, somebody I practiced with. And uh, he was talking about this whole issue of diversity and how how it affects us to be... uh, in a protected, protective bubble, you know, where we're around people who are beautiful, basically, in just the way that we're beautiful, you know, and we're all beautiful together. And it feels so safe, you know, we feel safe talking about our lives, we feel heard. And so, but this happiness is a limited kind of happiness because it depends on our heart having boundaries, being closed off, being protected, and all the different ways we do that, mostly unconsciously, probably. So that's, that's really, um, you know, we, that's why we have to commit to sensitivity. It's the only way. And uh, as I was saying in the, Monday, in the Sunday and Wednesday night programs, it's like this sensitivity knows no bounds. We have to open up until there's no more opening up. We have to see everything, feel everything. And not just like everything that's happening now, but the mind becomes so sensitive that we feel everything from the past. We feel all the injustice, all of the happiness. We feel it all. People who have meditated for a while and minds have gotten really calm, not only the people touch really beautiful, exalted states of calm and peacefulness, but they also touch archetypal pain, deep experiences of grief, of loss, of sadness, of hatred, of shame. And this is what the sensitivity, this is what sensitivity leads to. And the question is, are we going to trust it? Are we going to trust that pain we're opening to, that river of pain? And we will trust it if we see its effect, if we see that the tenderizing of the heart is just the ticket. It just helps us be so much more alive. And that any dependency, like dependency on a beautiful realm, you know, being around nice people, doing nice things, the dependency is deadening. Needing things to be nice is deadening. It doesn't mean that nice things aren't nice. Nice things are still nice, but the dependency on nice things is deadening for us. It doesn't work. It doesn't actually lead to happiness. So, you know, then we have a choice. Well, okay, I'll hang out in the pleasant realms as long as I can. And then when things go bad, well, then I'll 
follow the path of the Buddha. <laughs> but see, it doesn't work that way. One of the nice things about having a relatively pleasant existence is this is exactly the time to develop our profound sensitivity any way that you can. You know, to open the doors you don't really want to open. Whether it's in your formal meditation or something as simple as taking the bus or asking somebody how they're doing and really wanting to know, really willing to show up, even when they talk longer, even when they, like, you realize that, like, this is what I feel sometimes, you know, it's like, oh my God, this person, who was I reading recently? Oh, George Carlin, before he died, some of you know him, he's a well-known comic from the 60s and 70s with some real insight too, I think, you know, real perspective. And uh, it was sort of sad hearing him. This was probably not too long before he died. And he, he was talking about, somewhat sarcastically, but I think there was sort of a bitter truth to it too, that he had given up on humanity. And he, and he described it as uh, water when it's going on the drain, you know, like, this is what we're doing. We're circling the drain. This is sort of the predicament that we're in. Except, you know, we're not necessarily aware that we're circling the drain. So we can get pretty pessimistic about this. If we feel that that pessimism comes from the wrong view, though. It's really about the view that we need a permanent, beautiful place to abide. But if we real, if we're not, if we're letting that go, letting that orientation go, and we're taking up the path of sensitivity, of letting the heart break over and over again, being unafraid about life, however beautiful or tragic it might be, then it doesn't matter whether we're about to emerge into this sort of glorious realm where everybody's kind and everybody shares and everybody has enough to eat, or we're moving into a time when things will be bad or terrible even. Because our job is to let the heart be sensitive. And if we're in a relatively stable place, then let's use that time because it feels safer to explore profound sensitivity. And then when things do go bad, we'll have some momentum. We'll know how to be with it because we've been practicing will have a lot of faith at that point. Otherwise, if things go bad and then we decide to practice, we have no faith and we have no way to refresh the mind because things are bad now. Things are difficult now. How are we going to find some balance and take the steps to deepen the faith in total exposure? This is the time. And you can talk about this in your small groups tonight. I'll just mention a few other things you might feel like bringing up in the small groups. So, as I mentioned, you know, talk about this experience of compassion without meaning, like the actual experience of the heart being moved, but no, that movement, that sensitivity, that capacity to connect and to care, not being about any ideas, any definitions, sort of something pre-verbal. So that would be something. And maybe talk about experiences where it becomes verbal, it becomes about this or that, and how that kind of compassion maybe is is not so useful for you or for others. 
And then, you know, compassionate actions with traces, residues, without residues, reflecting on that in your life. Any resistance to that exposure you've noticed, fear of the pain, like somehow opening up is going to be harmful, hurtful, or more than hurtful, but somehow do damage, like it would be dangerous to be really present. That would be really useful to share because I think every one of us bumps up against that at times when the mind isn't balanced enough, when our confidence or faith isn't strong enough. Imitation of compassion versus real compassion or what tends to masquerade as compassion, you know, like a a pretend kind of compassion that you might have noticed. Places where it's relatively easy to be deeply sensitive and exposed and alive and responsive in places where it just not isn't easy at all. That would be a good thing to share. And then the last thing, um, just as a great thing to reflect on, is just as an aspect of faith, that in any situation that a human being can experience, can confront, that in that situation, there is a way for the heart to completely, fully show up, completely, fully respond. So that way, as we're going through all the different moments of our day, we may not know how to show up, how to respond fully, how to be alive fully in that experience. But wouldn't it be useful to maintain that thread of, of faith that there is a way? Because it kind of keeps us in the game. So that's something to share in your small groups, like times when maybe you didn't feel like you had the capacity to show up, to connect, to open to what was in front of you, to respond effectively. But then somehow the skill, the capacity to show up just was there. Even though you didn't think you had the capacity, there was. You were showing up, you were connecting, you were responding in an appropriate way. It was beautiful. So that would be another thing to share in the small group. So I think we have a little less than 60. So let's count off by uh, 18. Maybe that's the safest. Do you want to start, Joanne? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. And Nicole, you're three, and so you two will meet right over there by Nicole, Robin, Ro- uh, Robin, and Nicole, and then Tyler and I forgot your name. Okay, no, but you you counted behind K. Uh huh. Kim. So Tyler and Kim and Jimmy, did you count? Okay, so you three will be a group, and why don't you just go right in this corner here? Okay. So one in my office. Somebody can get a key. Two in Shelley's office. 
three, four, and five in the community room, six and seven and eight in the lobby, nine on the benches, uh, ten on the white couch, eleven uh, at the table in the workroom underneath the community room, uh, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen by the shed on those chairs. So we have seventeen and eighteen. Uh, anything I'm missing? How about eighteen in the entranceway? And 17 by Mike over here. Everybody got where they're going? Do we see there? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.